You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. All right, we're going to start our question and answer over the lunchtime here. So I've received some very good questions from the audience. All right, here's the first one. Would you ever name your child Spurgeon? Because my dad, who will remain nameless, wanted to name one of his, my siblings Spurgeon, but my mom vetoed him. I think we all wish that she would have stayed out of it because Spurgeon would be a sick name. Signed, Aiden. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, I, in fact, I know kids named Spurgeon, and, and I agree it's a sick name. <laughs> All right. In the sense they mean sick. Yeah. Did Spurgeon ever write a commentary on his favorite book, Pilgrim's Progress? And did he ever detail if Christian's conversion was at the fleeing of the city of destruction, the passing of the under wicked gate, or losing his burden? He never wrote a commentary on it. Um, he talked about it, you know, frequently. So I'd have to actually do a search to find if he talked about those specific episodes in Pilgrim's Progress. If so, he didn't. He probably didn't say much about it. He usually mentioned it in passing because he assumed that so many Victorian listeners were so familiar with the book, he didn't have to explain it much. Hmm. Uh, my former pastor, I, I've been privileged to be close to and, uh, and mentored by two really good expositors. Before John MacArthur was my pastor, Warren Wiersbe was my pastor. And, um, and he and I were, were good friends. I learned a lot from him. Uh, but Pilgrim's Progress was one of his favorite books as well. And he wrote an annotated, uh, edition of Pilgrim's Progress that's, uh, that I value highly. Um, I used to read Pilgrim's Progress and think, a lot of this doesn't make sense to me. I'm not sure it's doctrinally sound and all that. But Wearsby's sort of edited, annotated edition really helped me understand the allegory, and uh, it's worth getting if you can find it. It's I'm long out of print, I think, but I got it not long ago, about sometime within the past year, I realized my copy had gone missing. Somebody borrowed it and didn't return it. So I found a used copy on um, Amazon and ordered oh. it. So it's possible to get that. If, you, if you're really interested in Pilgrim's Progress... I do recommend Warren Wearsby's uh, annotated edition. Um, what interests <coughs> Spurgeon outside his preaching and writing? What What was the question? What interested Spurgeon outside of preaching and writing? Oh, you know, he had lots of interests because, and you can see this as you listen, he read everything, talked about everything. He could speak intelligently on practically any subject. He was, I think, keenly interested in politics, so he read the morning news and knew all about current events in England um, and often preached on preached sermons on special occasions, usually uh, not happy occasions, but if there was a disaster, like one of my favorite Spurgeon sermons is a sermon he preached about God's providence and God's goodness even in the midst of disaster after uh, two trains had collided in a tunnel in England, in a tunnel. So not only was this devastating death, it was almost impossible for rescuers to get in there and help people. It was a tragic thing. And then there was the the uh, uprising in India that happened 
while Spurgeon was pastoring in London. That was the event where he spoke at the, uh, uh, what's it, the glass? Yeah, the Crystal Palace. Um, that was a, that was a huge event that was organized by the British government to, to, uh, as a day of fasting and repentance for the cruelties of the British army that had led to the Indian uprising. It's a very interesting thing. Hmm. And Spurgeon preached on repentance. And um, there's an interesting story about that, too. He knew he was going to preach the largest crowd he'd ever gathered inside a building, 23,000 people. And he went there the day before as workmen were building the soundboard and the platform on which he would speak, and he wanted to test the sound. And so he got on this platform under the soundboard, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And there was a workman up in the ceiling fixing some lights or doing something who was so convicted by this voice out of nowhere that said, Behold the Lamb of God. Uh, he went home and began to read Scripture and was converted, you know, and years later sought Spurgeon out and said, Do you remember that day? And, and of course, Spurgeon remembers everything, so he remembered the verse he quoted even and and uh, told, the, told the story. So that was pretty oh. interesting. But... Go back to the original question. He was what I would call a polymath. He was good at everything. He knew about everything. And uh, I think any any subject would have interested him. He was, he was a sedentary man. He spent all his time sitting, reading, preparing sermons. And he even talked about this, that uh, his lack of exercise probably made his health problems lots worse. Uh, but it wasn't that he was lazy or... I say sedentary, it makes him sound lazy, but he was a very hard worker. It's just that all the work he did involved intellectual effort and sitting and reading. And uh, I, I can't think of a subject he wasn't interested in. <clears throat> okay, so rapid fire. What did Spurgeon do to rest? Uh, he sm- smoked a cigar. <laughs> and uh, That's okay, yeah. we leave it there. People will be happy with that answer. <laughs> what was one of Spurgeon's favorite hymns? I don't know. Uh, that's a question I don't know the answer to. If he had a favorite hymn, he quoted so many, and yeah. he knew so many. I wouldn't know. Do you have three favorite quotes from Spurgeon? No. It would be impossible to boil it down to three. Uh, for all the years I was blogging, on Sundays, I instead of writing a blog, I tried to write a blog or publish something every day, and I worked with two or three other guys, so I didn't have to do it myself every day. But Sunday, my assignment was put up a selection from Spurgeon. So if you do a Google search for your weekly dose of Spurgeon, yep. uh, I have posted, I don't know, probably seven or eight years worth of every single Sunday a quote from a Spurgeon sermon. Some of them are short, some of them are long, but those are my favorite Spurgeon quotes, okay. and there are dozens of them. What were some of Spurgeon's weaknesses and struggles aside from depression? Weaknesses. Uh, well, I honestly don't know of any character flaws in the man. Uh, and that may simply be because, like I said, Victorian uh, yeah. yeah, biographies really didn't focus on negative things. So I, I don't know of any. I know he had a, a great marriage. His kids grew up, both of them, to be pastors. He had two sons, twins. They were both pastors. And, uh, in fact, uh, 
I, I was privileged to correspond with his great-grandson, who died a few years ago, so now I don't know any more heirs of Spurgeon, but uh, right down through his great-grandson, his family were believers. And, and um, so, I, you know, I think he was kind of a model in every way, a model preacher, a model pastor, uh, probably a very good father, a loving husband whose wife absolutely doted on him. Um, so I don't know of any character flaws. Are there any areas of doctrine or theology where Spurgeon was off or unbiblical? That was the last question on this card, but I'll also tag in with that a question that I had prepared for you and ask it this way. Obviously, Phil Johnson and Charles Spurgeon would not agree on every point of doctrine and theology. So if Spurgeon were alive today and you could sit down and persuade him to change his mind on the biggest issue where you would disagree, what would that issue be and how would you present your argument to him? Well, A, I wouldn't be able to persuade him to change his mind. I don't know of anybody who ever did. Uh, B, I wouldn't volunteer for a debate with him either because he had that photographic memory and he could quote scripture like obscure passages of scripture, uh, as easily as, you know, I can quote movie quotes, you know. John 316? Yeah, whatever. Uh, so I wouldn't want to tangle with him in a debate. But the one issue that I would love to discuss with him and, and, I just probably most strongly would disagree with him on this is Sabbatarianism. Uh, I understand it because to this day, most of my British evangelical friends are still pretty strong Sabbatarianism, Sabbatarians. They believe that Sunday is the Christian Sabbath. He called it the Sabbath. Uh, I just don't see any grounds yeah. for that in Scripture. And uh, so I hesitate to use that kind of language or make the sort of rules that Jesus scolded the Pharisees for being legalistic about it and apply those things to to the Lord's Day. Yeah. Um, so that that would be the issue, I suppose, that he and I... Uh, the other one would be his, his views on church history and uh, Baptist successionism, the idea that uh, all these heretical groups were... Uh, we're actually Baptists in disguise, you know. It's interesting that he would have that perspective since that's the argument that Rome makes, and he was so virulent against the popery yeah. of Rome, and yet Rome tries to trace its lineage all the way back to Peter. It's interesting that he would fall into the same yeah. sort of logical error with that's, Baptists. That's exactly the point I would make with him. Why do you think it's important to trace a line of succession yeah. uh, when, in fact, Scripture says, for example, that the, the Holy Spirit is like the wind. You can't tell where it blows, where it comes from. What makes you think that a clear line of succession is going to be traceable like that? You can't even do that with Old Testament faithful people. Yeah. They, they pop up here and there, and, and uh, you know, the Davidic throne was derailed within two generations and hasn't been restored yet. Yeah. So why do you think a line of succession is important? I would ask him those questions. I, I, I think he held that view loosely. I don't think it was a dogma that he would have preached, but he wrote enough things to say that I, I think he was convinced that uh, John the Baptist was a Baptist, Baptist, yeah. and that Baptistic theology was... Let's get Baptist is in his name. Yeah, well, of course. Yeah. Uh, there are a couple of unusual instances in Spurgeon's ministry in which he appeared to have some knowledge of details in someone's life in his congregation that he did not know beforehand. One man he called out publicly regarding a particular sin. And charismatics at times often point to this to support their theology. Can you elaborate on these reports? Yeah. Yeah, there was only one incident that I knew like that. But then there's another one that sort of plays into that. 
Uh, and I, I would have, if I had chance to maybe do twice as many sessions, I would have talked about this. But when Spurgeon was a child living with his we, grandfather. We were, we were open in 2023 if you want to come back and, <laughs> and do, do another seven. No, nah, it's okay. No, no. You'll be tired of me. Buddy. No, would you guys favor that? Yeah, there we go. Go ahead. Anyway, when he was a child living with his grandfather, the, his grandfather hosted a guest speaker named Richard Nill, K-N-I-L-L, Knill. And Richard Nill was a famous preacher at the time, and he was really taken with Spurgeon as a little boy, as you would be when you hear these stories of, you know, how he confronted the guy in the pub and all that. He was really impressed with Spurgeon, and he told his grandfather, this boy is going to grow up to be a great preacher. And someday he'll preach in, um, I forget, he named a famous historic preacher and said he'll preach in his pulpit. And when he does, here's the hymn I want him to sing. It was that specific. And Spurgeon, of course, did grow up to be a famous preacher, and he did preach in that guy's chapel, and he sang the hymn that Richard Nill had told him. And he, he often spoke of that as a remarkable, I don't know if he used the word prophecy, but he sort of viewed it that way, as if the Holy Spirit had given this man some secret insight. Uh, he would always hasten to add that that's rare and almost unheard of in Christianity, and he would caution people... Don't live your life by impressions. Don't think that every intuition you get is the Holy Spirit mm-hmm. speaking to you. He even said, and these were his exact words, to do that is to live the life of a fool. So he wasn't in favor of the charismatic approach to listening for the voice of God in your head. But he had had a couple of these experiences. The other one was, uh, famously, he was he was uh, talking about the sin of stealing or something like that in a sermon. And he pointed in the gallery and he said, there's a man who stole a pair of gloves this week. Or it was something like that. It had to do with gloves, as I recall. And it was very specific. And in the area where he pointed, there was a man who had committed that sin and confessed to him later. It was as if you saw into my heart and, you know, called me out. I think Spurgeon regarded that as a remarkable providence, not a prophecy. He didn't have any... You didn't hear any voice of God or have any knowledge that this was true. It was something he said that, you know, actually the Lord used to convict this one particular person. He came up with an illustration kind of in, in the moment, it was and a, it happened to be coincidentally yeah, exactly it was what Yeah, it was a, what do you call it, a, a hypothetical, yeah. you know, thing, and he just happened to wave his hand that way. I don't think he was pointing out a certain person. He had no knowledge that the man was up there. But he found out later that that was exactly accurate. He regarded that as a remarkable providence, as I would. I would say, was that the Lord at work in that? I would say, absolutely. But I think there's a significant difference when the Lord uses our intuitions or uh, inadvertent thoughts, and he uses them in a way that that uh, accomplishes his will in a remarkable way. That's a remarkable act of providence. It's not a prophecy. Yeah. It's different from prophecy, and it's not... Those feelings are not infallible, and that's why Spurgeon said if you live that way, you're living a life of a fool. I have intuitions too, but they're wrong far more than they are right. And when they're right, I thank the Lord for the providence that led me in a way that, you know, worked out. I give God the credit for that, but I wouldn't regard that as a prophecy or a special revelation from God. And I think Spurgeon had the same view, although he wasn't contending with charismatics, so he didn't maybe watch his language as carefully right. as we would. Uh, so when he talked about the Richard Nill episode, he might have 
he might have called it a prophecy. I think I think he may have in one or two places. But the I, Azusa he, Street nonsense that cropped up later is after his lifetime, and right. not something that he would have been contending he, with. He in would his age. not have. He would not have been a charismatic. I promise yeah. you. And in fact, when he talked about the miraculous gifts, the apostolic gifts, he all, he was clearly a cessationist. He often said that those gifts are not operating anymore. So yeah, charismatics often quote him. Cessationists will quote him. Calvinists obviously will quote him. But Arminians also quote him. Yeah, quite prolifically, which is a very well, odd. He, like I said yesterday, he he has published more words than any other single author in in history, Christian history. So if you're willing to ignore the context of his actual theology and take selected quotes, yeah. you can use Spurgeon to prove almost any claim you want to make. Uh, but you have to read him in the context of his theology and understand what he clearly taught. And that's one of the issues I've dealt with, by the way. If you do a search for Spurgeon and prophecy and put my name in there, um, several times on my blog, people would bring up this idea, well, Spurgeon believed in prophecy. And so I posted quotes from Spurgeon himself, warning against this notion that God talks to you in your head. And those quotes are still online. So if you do a search for that, you'll find them. If you had to pick a name for the denomination of churches, such as Grace Church, Kootenai Church, or even Spurgeon's Beliefs, what would you call it? Reformed Baptist, perhaps? I've noticed that many churches, like the aforementioned, tend to call themselves non-denominational, but that term paints with a very wide brush. I've also heard the phrase Reformed Baptistic. Yeah, I'm not fond of Reformed Baptist, because Reformed uh, has, has a lot of baggage with it, you know, and it, uh, there are people, I have good friends, who are Reformed Presbyterians, and they would say that's a contradiction in terms. Reformed means you believe in a kind of covenantalism that embraces infant baptism. So it's incompatible with being a Baptist. Historically, Calvinistic Baptists, we call them Calvinistic, meaning they hold to the doctrines of grace, the five points of Calvinism. Historically, they've called themselves particular Baptists. And I like that, although it's, it's a, it's an odd name. I'm a particular Baptist. What are you particular about? <laughs> <laughs> and, in fact, there's another stricter sect uh, who not only believe in the, the doctrines of grace and they're Baptists, so they're particular Baptists, but they also believe in closed communion. You can't take communion in those churches unless you are a member or you have a ticket. So they are strict and particular Baptists. So I love that name, strict and particular. It just... You know, describes me. Yeah, I am both. It strict doesn't roll and off particular. the tongue really easily. But no, it, but it's me. I am both strict and particular. Did Charles Spurgeon have any hobbies outside the church? That's similar uh, to the previous question. Just reading, reading. Yeah. I mean, he read full time. And did like he read said, any fiction books? I don't think so. Uh, I was curious about whether because he was a contemporary of Dickens, and I discovered that he did own a complete set of first edition works of Dickens, but they didn't show any signs of having been read. Uh, he did occasionally make literary references to fictional people, so it wasn't that he couldn't have been ignorant of fictional books. It's just I don't think he would ever talk about it. He didn't. He wasn't a promoter of Dickens. And, uh, and in fact, this was something I was curious about because Dickens was the most famous writer in England during the same time that Spurgeon was the most famous Preacher, and I wondered, did they ever meet? Did they ever encounter each other? They knew some of the same people. They lived in the same basic neighborhood. They dealt with a lot of the same issues. 
Uh, but I couldn't find any reference to Dickens in Spurgeon, but I found references to Spurgeon in Dickens. Dickens made caricature. He didn't like Spurgeon very much, apparently, because he made some of his characters are caricatures of Spurgeon. I'm not familiar enough with Dickens to tell you where to go to look for that, but when I researched it, I found, oh, okay, so Dickens didn't have a high opinion of Spurgeon. If you could ask Spurgeon any one question, what would it be? If you'd ever met Dickens? No, I, I might ask him that. That wouldn't. If I only had one question to ask him, um, that would be a hard one. Um, I don't know. I have to ponder that for a while because it would have to be a really good question. Yeah. What happens to his children, and what kind of father was he? They grew up to be pastors. One of them pastored in New Zealand, founded a Baptist church in Auckland that's still there. It's a white wooden structure that is sort of modeled after the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London. It has the same Greek style of architecture, and it's called the Metropolitan Tabernacle of Auckland. Uh, and um, one of them pastored the Metropolitan Tabernacle after Spurgeon died, and during, I can't remember which is which, he had two sons, Thomas and who? No, I, I can't remember. But anyway, one of them pastored the uh, Met Tab after Spurgeon, and during his pastoral time there, uh, it burned down, the building burned down. So you go there today, you see a facade that looks like, it, it is the facade of the building that Spurgeon preached in, but that's not the same building, and it's not the same building that was rebuilt after it burnt down the first time. It was bombed in World War II and reduced to ruins. The whole building, except for the facade, fell into the basement, and it had to be rebuilt in the 1950s. So the building that's there today is a modern building that only its seating capacity is much smaller than it was in Spurgeon's time. Uh, so, But it looks like the same facade, but it isn't the same building. Was he a good father? I believe he was a good father. His sons were uh, looked to their dad as a model and followed in his footsteps, never said a negative thing about him, uh, grew up well. His wife became an invalid uh, shortly after the kids were born, and... and uh, all the biographies are silent about what the issue is. That lecture I mentioned by John Piper, he had done some research and found out it was a gynecological issue that left her homebound for the rest of her life. And uh, she spent uh, all her spare time sending out Spurgeon's books to pastors in America and England. And it's pretty common even now, if you look on eBay, you'll find a used book that was sent by Mrs. Spurgeon to some pastor in America. It's signed by her. Uh, there were there were thousands of them. That's that was her ministry. Uh, but yeah, he was a good father. As far as I know, I've never heard any criticism of his parenting skills, his attentiveness, or any of that. Besides John Knox, who were his heroes? <laughs> well, uh, I would say George Whitfield was probably his number one hero, even over John Knox. Um, and uh, he liked John Calvin, obviously, uh, uh, Zwingli. Uh, just trying to think who else, who uh, John Bunyan, big time. Can you explain the stand of Spurgeon's Church on instruments and music and the reasoning why they don't allow instruments? Yeah, it's a pretty common view that stems from the Reformation in Scotland, a lot of Scottish Presbyterian churches not only believe no instruments, but they they believe 
You shouldn't even sing hymns. All you should sing is metrical psalms. Uh, so they follow what's called the regulative principle, that if it's not commanded in Scripture, then it's not appropriate to do in worship. And they take that to the extreme of saying, the psalms, because they're inspired songs of worship, those are the only things we're permitted to sing. Now, they sing metrical psalms, which means they've been writ- rewritten so that they have themes and follow patterns of thought that are similar to the psalms. But if you if you listen to the metrical psalms, they 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 sometimes mention the name of Christ. So a lot of the psalms are Christological and all. But they're they're also Scottish metrical psalms use a a kind of reverse syntax that sounds like Yoda wrote them. You know, uh, <laughs> the King of Love, my Shepherd is. You know, yeah. that's the. So they turn the syntax around. I'm I like a lot of them, but they are hard to follow and understand. But but. Scottish Presbyterians tend to be very strict about that and no no instruments, which kind of mystifies me because Psalm 150, you know, lists a whole orchestra full of instruments that would seem to me to be authorization to use instruments in worship. But the old-fashioned strict view is you don't do that. And for whatever reason, that's been the policy at the Metropolitan Tabernacle, really was during Spurgeon's time. And I think I think they went through an era where they had more instruments and all that. But the current pastor is um, averse to that, let's say. I I asked him once, I pointed out that in every church I've ever been in in Britain, the hymn book that people use has only the words, not the tunes. And and I've never seen that in America. You get the tune and the, you get the music and the words together. And I said, uh, that seems to me a disadvantage with the British because you don't, if you don't know the tune, you don't know what to sing. You can't read the music, uh, and you can't sing harmony. And when I said you can't sing harmony, he kind of gasped, and he said, "We wouldn't encourage people to sing harmony." And I said, "Really? What? Why?" And he said, "Because the whole point is to be in unison, you know." And so that's his rationale. And they have, they do have an organ there, but he, he is constantly reminding the organist that what you want to bring out is the melody, none of the ornate stuff. Uh, and I think honestly that if he had his way, he would, he would get rid of the organ. Spurgeon ever meet or know D.L. Moody? Yes. They were friends actually. Uh, which was unusual because Moody, uh, Moody was huge in England. I mean, he made his fame over there. He was nobody. Uh, when he left Chicago after the Chicago fire and went to England and began to preach there. And uh, people were so taken with his accent and the free way in which he spoke uh, that he began to draw huge crowds and a lot of fame, but also a lot of controversy followed Moody. And uh, in Scotland, particularly with the with, with these Scottish Presbyterians who didn't believe in musical instruments, they they didn't like... He traveled with Sankey, a singer who, uh, and the music was was part of the appeal with with Moody, and so the Scots Reform guys were outraged, and Spurgeon was controversial, and I mean uh, Moody was controversial. So Spurgeon's embrace of Moody was a very important thing to Moody. Spurgeon was the first Calvinist who actually affirmed him, and Spurgeon loved Moody. Uh, he realized he's not a good theologian. But he didn't teach any heresy. He just preached the simple gospel. And Spurgeon loved that. And so he hosted him at this Metropolitan Tabernacle. 
like I think I said yesterday, when Sankey sang, he had to go in the basement because he used this portable case of whistles. <laughs> I love that. But, um, yeah, they got along famously. Spurgeon never said a negative word about Moody. And I know he had his concerns about Moody's shallowness and, and all of that, but he loved the fact that he was reaching people with the gospel. He would have never, he would have never, never characterized Moody as a decision, decisionalist or decisional regenerationist, anything he, like that. He wouldn't use Arminianism. those words because I don't think that was such a controversy at the time. And, and I, I don't think Moody gave, uh, you know, Billy Graham style invitations for people to come forward. He just preached the gospel yeah. and uh, people were converted in large numbers under Moody's preaching. So, uh, Spurgeon just wanted to affirm that. Uh, and, and he, he acknowledged that, yeah, uh, maybe Mr. Moody and I wouldn't share the same, same views on every point of theology, but we share the same gospel. And f- for that, I want to affirm him. Did Spurgeon ever visit the U.S.? No. He wanted to and planned to, but uh, it was the conflict over slavery and the, and the Civil War that kept him from coming. He was strongly anti-slavery, as were most Brit- British people, because they'd had that conflict you know, prior to that, and slavery had been outlawed in England and was regarded, you know, rightly, as a huge uh, uh, violation of human, basic human rights. And uh, because of his outspoken opposition to slavery, a lot of the British publishers who distributed his sermons edited his comments about slavery out, but he was controversial enough in the South and in places in the North that I think he, he, he felt like it would put him and his family in danger if he came to America. So he never came. Why do you think Spurgeon quoted this or said this? Quote, growing a beard is a habit most natural, scriptural, manly, and beneficial. Close quote. Well, he had a beard, and frankly, it wasn't an impressive one, I think. If you look at his beard, it's a bit scraggly. And I, I say that as someone who has trouble growing hair right here in the center of my chin myself. So, so uh, you know, I guess he was proud of whatever beard he could grow. And it was the style in those times. Uh, it, it began, the style began to diminish towards the end of his ministry. And you see in the late 1800s, more and more men becoming more clean shaven. They did mustaches only or smaller beards and, and all that. He was, he was a full beard type guy. Can you share your perspective on this? Last night you shared how a young Spurgeon called out a wayward church member, Thomas Rhodes, who was smoking and drinking in the pub. Later on, Spurgeon developed a love for cigars. Do you think a young Charles was a little legalistic, and was Spurgeon a teetotaler? No, no, and I, and be clear about this. It wasn't because the guy was smoking that Spurgeon accused him of, you know, hurting his pastor's feelings. It was because he was just squandering his life sitting in the pub all day. If the guy had been out, you know, working his farm and smoking a pipe, I don't think Spurgeon would have thought anything about it, because nobody in those days... uh Especially in the early days of Spurgeon's life, nobody considered smoking a sin. Every, lots of people did it. And I don't know whether Spurgeon's grandfather smoked or not, but uh, yeah, it wasn't smoking that he had an objection to. Now, he did become a teetotaler. Uh, he gave up alcoholic beverages, which was good for his gout, frankly, but it was, a, it was also a, a moral conviction. He was persuaded by the prohibitionists uh, that... Um, 
drinking was not a good thing and Christians should abstain. He, he made exceptions to that. I don't think he would have balked or, or been offended if he attended a dinner party and somebody served him a glass of wine. Uh, and, and they used real wine at the Lord's table in his church. Uh, so he, he didn't have the kind of objection to alcoholic beverages that some people, it wasn't a legalistic thing. It's just that I think he had had so much experience with people who were, you know, drunks and alcoholics that he just felt it was better to abstain. He took the same view as John MacArthur, basically, that, look, in Scripture, you took a little wine for your stomach's sake because wine was necessary because water was filled with diseases and stuff. But Spurgeon was saying, no, there's, there's other other things you can drink safely, so why risk uh, you know, becoming addicted to something that's going to destroy your life? So he just abstained. I, I don't, he never made a sermon about it, as far as I know. He didn't preach it as an absolute necessity for Christians. And I'm sure a lot of the people in his church and friends that he, he uh, w- was close to didn't have any objection to drinking alcohol. As far as I know, he never made it an issue, but for his own personal practice... He didn't drink. So many prominent Christian leaders end their lives in scandal, moral scandal, or doctrinal compromise. And you have worked alongside of a man who has, for 50 years, held the line and has been free from any kind of moral compromise in that way, thinking most notably recently of Ravi Zacharias and that debacle. Was Spurgeon ever, in his ministry, ever accused of sexual or financial impropriety? And what kinds of accusations, if ever, were raised against Spurgeon? Yeah, certainly not sexual. Uh, there were people who criticized him uh, for the fact that he he was he, he let's say he had at his disposal uh, lots of wealth. I wouldn't call him a wealthy man. He did live in a a, a sizable house. It was a we, we might call it a mansion. It was it would have been a small mansion, but you see pictures of his library that I showed. That's his house where he lives, bigger than the house I live in. Uh, so it was, and it was in a nice part of London. Um, he made lots of money as royalties off the sale of his sermons and books. Uh, but what people didn't know, and Spurgeon couldn't say publicly, was that he used the vast majority of his wealth to support widows and orphans and found orphanages. And he was the largest donor to the pastor's college that he started. So people who criticize his money were criticizing what they assumed his income was. Nobody, nobody could ever criticize his lifestyle. He didn't live in opulence. He didn't, uh, he didn't squander large amounts on luxuries. In fact, the only, the only thing he ever really bought for himself that was expensive were his books. Uh, he had this massive library that I'm sure was worth, you know, thousands of pounds, but, um, other than that, he didn't. You know, he, he traveled to the French Riviera every year late in his life because of his health. And to us, that sounds like, okay, there's a life of luxury on the French Riviera. But sometime, look up pictures of the hotel where he died, the place where he would go when he went there to get away from London cold. This was not a fancy hotel or an expensive place. And, in fact, it's a dungeon you and I probably would not be pleased to stay in. Um, doesn't even exist anymore. It's been torn down. So, but he didn't, he didn't flash the badges of luxury or wealth, uh, 
though he had a great deal of wealth at his disposal. People did complain about it. Uh, I have an excerpt somewhere uh, that he wrote in answer to that about, you know, he wasn't going to tell people how much money he gave to causes, but uh, if someone wants to criticize him for being a lover of money, point out where he's lived an opulent lifestyle rather than speculating on how much money he made off the sale of his sermons. Spurgeon's productivity is legendary, so can you quickly describe a week, and I say quickly because we're past time, describe a week in Spurgeon's life? Uh, Yeah, Monday he edited Sunday's sermon and read and answered mail. Tuesday he began reading and studying material, not only for his sermons, but for many years he was writing a series of books on the Psalms called The Treasury of David. It's, I think, a six-volume set uh, where he goes exhaustively through the Psalms and and gives uh, quotations from all the Psalms commentaries that he owned. It's a f- fantastic book and took years for him to do. He would spend, you know, a full day every week doing that. And then he did a lot of church work as well, but he stayed in his study virtually all week. And uh, people knew where he lived, so people with requests for monetary help or charity from the church or whatever would often show up at his house, and uh, he wasn't equipped to deal with things there, so he would. his practice was to write a note to the deacons at the tabernacle and give it to the person asking for help and send them to the tabernacle and say, the deacons there will help you. And so he would, he would write in this note what he, what he wanted to be done. You know, give this person enough money for a week's groceries or whatever, and then the deacon would fulfill it. And to this day, they have files of Spurgeon's handwritten notes to the deacons uh, stashed away in the Metropolitan Tabernacle where nobody's allowed to look at them. I haven't seen them myself, but I've, I, I had a couple of them read to me. And my favorite one was, and I'm maybe not supposed to say this publicly because uh, the, the people who control this stuff now would like to keep Spurgeon's private stuff private. But this is funny, so I'm going to tell it anyway. He writes this note and gives it, to, sends it to the deacon with the lady. It's in a sealed envelope, so the deacon reads it, but the person carrying the note doesn't. And... Um, the note says something like this. This woman talks like a parrot with its tail on fire. <laughs> but her needs are real, so help her as much as you can. <clears throat> oh, very good. This, this came in the form of a question, but I'm going to make it as a statement, and I'm not going to ask you to respond to this. But <clears throat> uh, the ministry of grace to you has been similarly productive. To Spurgeon's ministry, very comparable. Um, in fact, there's one of our elders who wrote this to me and, and made this observation that I don't think that there has been a single force in Christ, the history of Christianity that has done more for the propagation and defense of the gospel and sound theology and doctrine and expository preaching than the ministry of John MacArthur, Grace Community Church, and Grace to You. I cannot think of a close second. I can think of a lot of other worldwide ministries, but I can't think of another one. You can go into the Ugandan jungles and see people without running water who have a MacArthur Study Bible and a little MP3 player where they listen to John MacArthur's sermons. Just a stunning <clears throat> amount of productivity that has come from you guys and your ministry. So my appreciation to you. Thank you. Last, you know, Spurgeon <clears throat> would love that too. Like I said, he wasn't averse to 
technology, but he had a, there was a similar phenomenon with him because of the printed sermons. And in fact, when David Livingston died in Africa, uh, one of the few things he had keeping with him as possessions in uh, Africa was a Spurgeon sermon, a printout of a Spurgeon sermon. Hmm. Uh, so anyway. If you could live, and this quickly, if you could live in the 1800s and serve alongside Spurgeon, as you have for John MacArthur, what counsel would you give him that would improve his preaching, improve his effectiveness, prolong his life, and protect him? Get some exercise. You know, get out and, and you know, do some... You know, I don't know what the treatment for gout is, but uh, his his pain from gout made his life almost unbearable. That's why he didn't get a lot of exercise. It, it's nothing, nothing felt good. And uh, so, yeah, I think I'd encourage him to maybe take up some healthier habits, perhaps even stop the smoking or s- smoke less. <laughs> to improve his preaching? Ah. Could Phil Johnson improve Charles Spurgeon's preaching? I wouldn't try. Honestly, wouldn't try. I I do think that there are things about his preaching that I would critique, like the fact that he's jumping off a text and sometimes not really even paying any attention to the context of it and doing a topical message. I I would say, why don't you try a expository sermon. And he did do a few of those. It just wasn't his style. We, we see the, the blessing and the fruitfulness of Spurgeon's ministry in spite of the fact that he was not an expositor. And we would never encourage anybody to give messages like Spurgeon delivered. And yet the blessing of God rested upon that. How do we explain the fact that he was so fruitful <clears throat> and so blessed and his ministry was so blessed in spite of the fact that it was not expository ministry? Yeah, I prefer expository ministry, but I wouldn't say that's the only way you can preach because you look at the New Testament and what the apostles preached. Sometimes it's just a, a broad overview of a biblical story told in their words with a few minor quotes. Now, we, what we've got is, I'm sure, an abbreviated yeah, edition of that sermon, but it's not classic expository preaching. So I don't think that's the only way you could ever preach. Uh, and I think Spurgeon's... Uh, Ministry was the answer to why was it fruitful is because it was so biblical, so full of biblical contents and biblical truth, and uh, you know quotes from directly from scripture. Um, so that's why I wouldn't try to change him. What he did was his own style; it was an expression of his heart and his his voice. And uh, you know, although there might be things I'd critique about it, honestly, don't think I could help him improve in any way. I'd right. probably learn something from him. I mentioned that I had two pastors, Wiersbe and MacArthur, both of them known as gifted expositors, but their style is totally different, like totally different. John goes through a, a text phrase by phrase, word by word, he comments on everything. It, it's amazing what he can do, and mostly without any discernible outline. He's just going through the text. Uh, Wearsby's genius was his ability to take a passage and outline it in a way that you, by reading his outline, you saw the, the, the logical flow and meaning of this passage. But he wasn't as meticulous in, you know, getting into the text and the words as John. I've learned from both of them and, uh, I've applied things I learned from both of them. So my style isn't like either one of them, but, um, I wouldn't say that somebody else needs to follow my style either. All right, that's it for this Q&A. So we have two more sessions and then a bonus session after that. I have a couple more questions that I want to ask in connection with the bonus session. So we'll take a five-minute break. 
and then Phil will go into his next lecture. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.